Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. As an evangelical Christian, I began digging into the roots of my Christian faith, into where my Bible came from and where my beliefs began, and what I found was, inevitably, the Catholic Church. It's impossible to avoid looking into church history and not bumping into the Catholic Church, but when I began to do that, what I realized as I began to read from Catholic authors and listen to Catholic lectures and watch Catholic speakers is that what I thought about Catholicism was often wrong. It was based in large part on misinformation and, more often than not, simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast is meant to fill in that gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. We have real Catholic conversations with real Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. But this episode is a bit different. I'm speaking to Dr. Mike Lacona. He is an evangelical Christian at a Baptist university. He's not a Catholic. But what we share in common is something really important to talk about. Dr. Lacona has written, has dedicated most of his academic life to discussing differences in the Gospels and problems, so-called irreconcilable differences in the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. We dig into these topics, Dr. Lacona and I. Are the Gospels reliable? Is it reasonable to think that Jesus rose from the dead when there are these so-called irreconcilable, impossible to reconcile differences in the gospel accounts? Dr. Lacona says these accounts are not a problem, and in most cases, they don't exist. It's a great discussion, a timely discussion, which meets head-on some of the most pressing challenges of modern scholarship modern atheism, and modern agnostic skepticism. It's a great episode for anybody interested in digging deeper into the gospel accounts. It's fantastic, and I'm so grateful for Dr. Lacona joining me on this program. This episode is brought to you by my patrons, by those who support the show. Thank you guys please head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic if you want to help support this show. Even one or two dollars a month goes a long way into helping to cover the costs of this show. I can't do it without you guys. One-time donations can be made at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. Your prayers, your support, your financial contributions are very important critical to helping this show move forward. So, thank you. And one more thing. If you could, this week, tell one friend about this show, someone that you think might like it, might be interested in the Catholic Church, or even in this particular episode, just looking at Bible differences, please tell that friend. They'll tell their other friend, maybe, and then they'll tell their friend. And that's how this podcast grows. If this is God's will that this podcast gets out and continues to grow, then you can play an important part in that. So, thank you. 
please tell a friend. Please pray for me. I am praying for you. And without any further ado, here's my fantastic discussion with Dr. Mike Lacona. Please listen and enjoy. Hi, friends, and welcome back to the program. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Lacona. Dr. Lacona has a PhD in New Testament. He is a frequent speaker on university campuses, churches, Christian groups, and retreats. He is the author of some fantastic books, including The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, co-authored by Gary Habermas, and Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? what we can learn from ancient biography, from a publisher I've never heard of before called Oxford University Press. (laughs) He is a popular guest on television and radio programs and a frequent and fantastic debater who regularly meets some of the toughest skeptical scholars without even flinching. Dr. Lacona is an associate professor of theology at Houston Baptist University and the president of the ministry Risen Jesus Incorporated. Dr. Lacona, I am so excited to have you on this program. Hello and welcome. Well, thanks, Keith. It's wonderful. Uh, Thanks for inviting me on. This has been a little bit of a, 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 it's felt like a long time for me in coming. I've been very excited to speak to you and anticipating this conversation for a while because this is one of those topics that, oh, I just love to listen to uh, the discussions and the debates and dig into the books and the blog articles about these topics because it's something that I've been uh, exposed to and thinking of for a long time. And I've had a lot of uh, listeners and this program and readers of my my blog uh, and interactions with people out in the world who these are questions that uh, that we're going to tackle today. These issues of um, well, things you deal with, the resurrection of Jesus, and for our episode here, the reliability of of the gospels and these these mistakes and and problems with the gospels. These are are really relevant and really current issues. I feel like in uh, in the the wider Christian world today. So I'm excited to dig in this dig into this with you and thank you so much for being here. Oh my pleasure, Keith. All right, so let's get into it. I, I first became interested in this question of the reliability of the gospels and mistakes or differences in the gospels. Uh, after a few key conversations, like I said, with with readers of of my blog and listeners to this podcast, and I think of one particular conversation, a, a very earnest one, where a reader who'd been raised Christian their whole life went went to church, practiced their faith, and encountered some of these scholars uh, who are critical of the Gospels, people like Bart Ehrman, and found their faith really shaken. I mean, truly shaken, and having these supposed irreconcilable differences between the gospel stories suddenly undermined the whole New Testament and, and, and the faith of this reader. And they began to question what they'd come to believe their whole lives and a central part of their worldview. And I think of so many conversations like this one and, and seeing the absolute devastation of, of some of these critical um, works of, of scholarship, uh, what they're capable of. Um, and if someone doesn't doesn't equally know work like yours, you know, on the opposite side, responding to these, 
you know, they're, they're missing a, 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 huge, a huge piece, the, the response to this critical scholarship. So I wonder then, with, with this in mind, how you first became interested in digging so deeply into the history of the Gospels and, and questions of their reliability and addressing some of these so-called differences and problems. How did you become interested in that field to begin with? Oh, that's a good question, Keith. Um, it would have been around, let's see, 2009. Um, yeah, around 2009, I debated Bart Ehrman in 2008 and then again in 2009. We debated on the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in both debates, Bart would bring up a lot of objections against the Gospels. Um, the thing was, I my my case for the resurrection was based on a number of facts that are granted by virtually all scholars, and in fact that Bart himself even grants. So my contention was, look, we all agree on the facts that I'm presenting for my case for the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the method that I used to arrive at the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. So we're not disputing the facts. I'm waiting to hear from you to dispute the method that I'm using. And But he was going after the Gospels, so you know, I'd respond and say, look— we both agree on the facts, whether, you know, we may disagree on how reliable we think the Gospels are. But, Bart, whatever arguments you are using to arrive at these facts, let's just say that they're my arguments as well. I'll grant you those arguments. They're my arguments as well. We all agree on the facts. Now, what do you do with my method and conclusion? So I, I thought that I, you know, I, I, I thought that I did pretty well in those debates. Um, so, a few months after that debate, the second debate, I was teaching a grad level course on the resurrection. And the last thing I had them do, uh, again, this is 2009, last thing I had them do was to view that debate. We watched it together. Um, and at the end, I said, so what do you all think? Because this is what I've been teaching you throughout this course, the kind of stuff. And you saw it in action here. And like most, all, all the students thought that I won the debate. And then I said, you know, any comments, other comments? And and one girl I remember, she said, yeah, you did not answer Ehrman's objections against the Gospels, his assault on the Gospels. He had numerous arguments that I have since um, uh, restated as the A, B, C's, D's, and E's of the Gospels. You have authorship, bias, contradictions, dating, and eyewitnesses. And these are the five um, objections that he brought up against the Gospels. And I said, yeah, uh, I did not address those during the debate because the debate was on the resurrection of Jesus. It was not on, are the Gospels reliable? And as we saw, you can show that Jesus rose from the dead. You can uh, show, historically speaking, that he rose from the dead without even you know, having to defend <coughs> excuse me, the reliability of the Gospels. And she said, yeah, but... I understand that, but it really has rocked my faith in the Gospels. And she had tears in her eyes. And at that point, um, I said, well, how many of you, asking the rest of the students, how many of you had your faith in the Gospels rocked by Ehrman's arguments? And a number of them raised their hands. And at that point, I figured, well, you know, this doesn't really impact whether Christianity is true but it could impact the health of Christians because the spiritual health because of their 
um, rocked faith in the Gospels. And so at that point, I determined that I was going to do some work on the reliability of the Gospels and focus on the thing that seems to trouble people most, and that's gospel differences. So that's what got me interested in this topic initially. Well, as I as I said, it's such an important uh, place to be working, I think, because more and more, I think that these challenges are challenges. I mean, as, as you've seen, that are that are shaking the faith of people. These these so called differences. You know, I think back to uh, a New Testament course that I took in my undergrad that was taught by uh, a Mennonite professor, and I remember him. At the outset, uh, this is probably you know, 15 or more years ago, maybe now, but saying that scholars believed that probably most of what the Gospels record Jesus as having said probably wasn't said by Jesus, and that what we have to do is just accept that there was a bit of broken telephone going on or mythologizing or, or what have you. Mm. And, you know, this this professor uh, was really the first academic that I encountered in a university setting who was speaking about the Bible like this. And I remember being quite shocked. And it wasn't until I did more digging that I realized that what he was what he was approaching this with, what he was presenting to us with, was essentially um, coming out of the Jesus seminar, you know. But it took, uh, but it was presented so uncritically, so matter of fact to all mm. of us undergrads, um, as if there were a consensus of of every kind of modern scholar. You know, they agreed. I know these days, you know, the views that are critical of the Gospels run the gamut. You, know, you have people like Bart Ehrman, who came out of Christianity, lost his faith, I guess, digging into these so-called problems, um, or these irreconcilable differences in the Gospels. You have this remnant, I think, of this Jesus Seminar scholars who really critically uh, examine the sayings of Jesus and parsed out by various metrics, I guess, what Jesus really said and what he didn't say. And then you have somebody like Richard Carrier on the far end of the spectrum, who, if I understand him correctly, doesn't even believe that Jesus was a real person. Mm-hmm. So, I, I want to dig into some of these specific areas and avoid too much generalization, uh, but I think there are themes that probably run through some of these these criticisms. Uh, and I wonder if, if you've seen, you know, are there certain areas or aspects of the Gospels that all of these critics agree on as problematic? I'm thinking maybe of the Gospel writers' accounts of, of miracles, maybe, for example. Are there areas where all of them, no matter how far on the spectrum apart they might be on on their criticisms, areas they all see as big problems when approaching the Gospels as being reliable? Yeah, Keith, I would say the, um, the, the fact that the Gospels do report miracles, um, well, it is a challenge for historians. It does add an addition, it, it, it gives us an additional challenge to the challenges already inherent in historical investigation. What do you do when it's a miracle claim? And this is something um, I would say today the majority of, of historians and New Testament scholars or historians of Jesus would say that historians are not permitted to adjudicate on a story that is miraculous in nature. And they'll give various reasons why. We can discuss those if you'd like. Um, But there is a movement among professional philosophers of history as well as New Testament scholars who would say, no, you're wrong on that. There's no reason why a historian a priori uh, could not investigate a miracle claim if the event in question actually occurred, if an event, just say any event, if an event, event X occurred, if it really happened, then if we have sufficient data, 
we should be able to establish its occurrence as historians. Well, what if the event X is a miracle? Why does that place it outside the purview of historians? I, I don't think that it does. Um, so, But there are a number of us right now who are arguing that way, and we are trying to change the existing um, consensus. I shouldn't say it's a consensus, but the existing majority view that historians cannot investigate miracle claims. There are those of us who think that they are terribly mistaken. We are not persuaded by their arguments. In fact, we think their arguments are severely flawed. Yeah, I'm thinking of some of these debates I've seen in articles I, I've read where these these scholars critical of the gospel will say something like, well, you know, you can you can dismiss or they or they might not say it outright, but their actions and their, you know, inbuilt in their thesis would be the idea that, well, since there are miracles in this account of Jesus, well, it can't possibly be real. So it's just brushed aside. But but what you're saying is, no, historians do have a place in digging into that miracle. Uh, in the same way, I guess. Maybe this is a maybe this is a, a bad analogy, but or a bad comparison. But you, you would think of the way that, um, and this is maybe more frequent in, uh, in in Christian circles when when Christian scientists scientists doing uh, who are who are Christian uh, in their in their worldview are digging into miracles that seem to be real. And you know, there were a number of recent cases, recent books published on detailing and classifying miracles and saying, look, science does have a place in digging into miracles. Maybe in the same way that historians, you know, you'd see them having a place digging into historical miracles. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think that that is a legitimate response there. And and so the, uh, the skeptic who would brush aside uh, the gospel's wholesale or large parts of the gospel's wholesale um, that have to do with miracles, uh, you're pushing back on that. You're saying, no, 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 like th- there is room for looking at these accounts more closely, even if this premise that a miracle occurred seems far-fetched. That's that's correct. Uh, you know, again, there are various objections that are given or re- reasons why uh, certain scholars contend that a historian can't investigate a miracle claim. Uh, one would be, uh, it's, you know, if you're talking about God, um, I mean, you have John Meyer and you have Bart Ehrman who will say this, it, since God would have been the cause of a miracle and historians have no access to God using their tools, the tools of their trade, um, the historian at least could never say that God did such and such. So, they, they can't confirm the miracle. Well, for that, I would give a hypothetical and say, let us suppose that astronomers have been tracking a comet for the past 20 years, and recently they determined that that comet is going to collide with the moon on a certain day at a certain time. And so everybody's watching. The Hubble Space Telescope is focused in on the moon surface, and planetariums across the globe are focused in on it, and they are there, and many of us are watching on television as the comet slams into the moon's surface. And as the lunar dust settles, we observe a message written on the moon's surface, and it appears in both Hebrew and in Greek, and it says, Jesus is Lord. Now, by any circumstances, we can conclude, I don't think many would contend with the conclusion that a miracle has occurred here. We wouldn't, however, turn around and say 
that the astronomer, as astronomer, could not say that the event occur- occurred because it would require God to do it, and the astronomer has no access to God using the tools of their craft. No, we would say that the astronomer could conclude that the event occurred, but the astronomer operating within the confines of their discipline, using the tools available to them, could not conclude that the cause of the event was God. There's no way that an astronomer using their tools could determine it was God who caused that event. So the astronomer as astronomer would say the event occurred and just leave the cause of the event undetermined. In a similar way, it would be illegitimate, let's say, for the historian who looks at the data for, say, a miracle like Jesus' resurrection, sees that the resurrection hypothesis is by far the best way of explaining the data. Uh, They could conclude that Jesus rose from the dead while leaving the cause of the event undetermined. And that would be a form of methodological naturalism that would be fair to the data, uh, and it would allow the historian to stay within his or her own discipline, and it would be a controlled uh, methodological naturalism without being unduly biased toward an atheistic view. <laughs> I think that last bit of that uh, that comment is the zinger, because of course there is, uh, and that's a fantastic uh, answer, I should say, and example, but of course there is that atheistic bias um, in that approach that just discounts these things as being impossible to understand, right? Uh, that Yeah, I mean, we find that we see that a lot within the scientific discipline, or, or let's say biology, um, we see that a lot. Uh, you'll find it in astronomy at times too, but especially in biology where, you know, they're trying to explain the complexity of life the complexity of the cell and DNA and scientists have not been able to come up with any plausible scenarios where life on its most basic level could have evolved by natural unguided natural processes. They've, they don't have any thing that can explain that as well as human consciousness and how that would have evolved by unguided naturalistic processes. So they have no plausible explanations. So along comes um, a molecular biologist, let's say like a Michael Behe or some others, and they suggest that, hey, we've got some criteria for identifying when something has been designed. And if we apply that to the, the question of how life or like origin of life questions, how did life on earth originate? Um, we see that the data suggests that there was an intelligent designer of some sort who's responsible for the existence of life on earth. No, they wouldn't say it's God. They just say it's some sort of intelligent designer who put life on earth. Well, you, you could get the, the pushback from the community of biologists, of scientists, would be so strong to try to ostracize anyone who's trying to make that claim. It's, it's, you have to play by their atheistic rules. They will not even allow the possibility 
of some sort of immensely intelligent and powerful being who would have been responsible for placing life on earth. <laughs> That's very well said. You know, one of uh, one of my favorite books in, in recent years, uh, it's also from Oxford University Press, and it's by uh, actually a secular uh, writer named doc- Dr. Jacqueline uh, Duffin. And uh, she's a doctor and uh, uh, teaches in actually the faculties of history, philosophy, and medicine at a university. And she's kind of a medical uh, historian. And her book chronicles, it's called Medical Miracles, and it chronicles historical miracles, um, I think, out of the Vatican archives. Like she digs out these, um, she, they opened the archives for her to do research, and she dug into these these records of miracles. And then as a, as a physician uh, and a medical historian, kind of dug through these miracles to see what she could verify. Again, like you said, like, I mean, the perspective of, of this, uh, this, um, this asteroid has hit the, the moon, you know, she's looking at these miracles, not to come to the conclusion and say, oh, this must have been God, because she, she is actually a secular doctor. Uh, writing this book, but she presents all these miracles and goes through them and says, look, these are all unexplained miracles. Science, you know, based on what I can tell from the reports that were taken and the and the, um, the diagnoses that were done and the conclusions that these doctors would have found based on their technology and then based on what we know now about these things, these miracles are unexplained. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what what created them, what caused them, maybe further unknown science that we don't know. Uh, she doesn't say, oh, or it was God, because she was, at least at this time of the writing, I don't know where she is now, <laughs> but it's quite the expose she presents of these hundreds of miracles that um, that have no explanation, right? But are worth, as her, as a scientist, as a doctor, digging into and saying, here, this is what happened, we can prove this happened, and I don't know what the conclusion is, right? That's a much more... Um, that reminded me of your approach, right? Her approach seemed to be a similar way coming from the sciences, maybe, to approaching miracles. Like, we don't know, we don't know what caused these. I know, I think you and I <laughs> know, and I think the Vatican knew when they collected them. But uh, a, a different approach than that, that I think a much more narrow atheistic approach to uh, the history of the Gospels and then the existence of miracles as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and it, you you get... When those accounts begin to compound one upon another, upon another, upon another, it gets, you know, you see these kinds of things, it gets pretty difficult to um, just to deny the existence of the of spiritual dimension of reality. Yeah, and, and I mean, uh, it's fascinating uh, reading her, her accounts as, as a secular doctor of how she, you know, just, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh one of the charges that you often hear uh, leveled against the Gospels, and this is one of those, I think, a, tr- a trope, really, that's in just about every corner of the internet, is that we can't trust the Gospel accounts because what we're holding in our hands at the end of the day isn't the Word of God, but the product of a kind of uh, ancient game of telephone, right? These Gospel stories are passed down and passed down and kind of elaborated on or embellished along the way. And not only does this account for some of these so-called problems or, or differences between the Gospels, but makes them, at best, an unreliable account of Jesus altogether. What do you say in response to this kind of a broken telephone criticism of the Gospels? 
Yeah, that's that's pretty easy, I think. Uh, for one, I, I would say that that does not take into account the continuing role of the eyewitnesses. It would require that shortly after Jesus' death, his followers went off on a permanent religious retreat and were never heard from again. But when you read Paul's undisputed letters in the book of Acts, we see uh, that such a view would be discredited because the apostles, those who had followed Jesus, were out uh, publicly proclaiming the message about Jesus and Jesus's message for at least two, two and a half decades after Jesus's death. And that brings us up to the very doorstep of when the first gospel, Mark, was written. I would also point out that it um, just assumes, unjustifiably assumes, that um, the gospel authors were, they lacked the sense, they lacked the desire to get to the truth. And so they just didn't even bother to sift through the stories about Jesus, filtering out those that um, were of questionable origin and retaining those that would have been known to have been rooted in eyewitness testimony. Uh, Another thing we could point out would be that there is really good evidence for the authorship, the traditional authorship of some of the Gospels, uh, especially, let's say, Mark and Luke, and that there is eyewitness testimony, let's say, in John. So uh, our our earliest uh, witness to the testimony, the authorship, excuse me, the authorship of Mark would be a guy named Papias. We're not certain when he wrote. Uh, It was somewhere between the year 100 and 150 uh, is the range that a lot of scholars will give it. Most scholars now uh, date Papias' writings around the year 130, 135. I think it's much uh, earlier than that, probably in the first decade of the second century. But even so, um, even if we grant it, let's just say 135, Papias says that he got his information about the authorship of Mark from an associate of the Apostle John, and that he got it from this associate while the Apostle John was still preaching, which means that Papias received this information sometime in the latter part of the first century. Now, that's pretty astonishing uh, to think of where the information for the authorship of Mark's gospel comes from, from a guy who heard it from an associate of one of Jesus' apostles. That's, that's pretty profound. And then even today, most Johannine specialists, those New Testament scholars who specialize in the literature attributed to John, they, the majority agree that John's gospel, um, now a lot of them don't accept the traditional authorship. Most of them don't accept the traditional authorship that it was John, the son of Zebedee. I think that it was John, the son of Zebedee, but I'm just saying most scholars don't think that. However, even these scholars who reject the traditional authorship of John, the son of Zebedee, as the author, they do believe that the Gospel of John was either written by another one of Jesus' disciples, or, more likely, they say, that the author of John's Gospel his primary source for the information contained in it was one of Jesus' apostles, one of his disciples who had walked with him. So that means it's only one generation removed that the author of John's gospel, even if we were to reject the traditional authorship, it just like Mark, uh, Mark's gospel is based on the memoirs of Peter, things he heard directly from Peter. John's gospel would be uh, based on eyewitness testimony 
uh, testimony that the author had heard directly from an eyewitness. That's pretty profound. So we're not talking about this game of telephone that have an endless number of tradents who communicate uh, from one to the other, to the next, to the next. And uh, after you've gone through hundreds of these people, the form that it had taken at the very end, that's what you find in the Gospels. No, at least with Mark and with John, you have at the very worst, they're basing it just on their, their writing, what they heard, what an eyewitness told them. And that's pretty profound. So there's no reason to go with this game of telephone thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about a paper I wrote, uh, a major history paper I wrote in university, um, that was on uh, it was on the German re- religious resistance to Hitler. So so Bonifer and those kind of people, and I uh, I I counted for the essay. Um, it was about less than a hundred pages, but I had about fifty or so reliable sources I quoted. Uh, you know, in, in the end, and one of the critiques of the Gospels that I've heard leveled against them by modern scholars, again, is that they don't cite sources at all. You know, you talk about authorship here, who who may have inspired what, or who what sources they may have used, or who the authors were. Uh, and one of the critiques against that is, well, there, there's, there, no one comes out and says, here's my source, you know, here's my... And in something as unimportant as a small paper I wrote in university, I, I had 50 sources, so what do you say to these scholars who who claim that the lack of outright citation, this kind of ancient plagiarism, just adds to these Gospels as being untrustworthy? Well, I would say, first of all, that the um, when, you, when you look at other ancient literature, a lot of the other ancient literature, those authors do not cite their sources. Um, now, some of them do, of course. Plutarch cites sources on occasion, um, but it is you, you don't find them citing sources all the time. And then you have people like, and, and Plutarch is considered the greatest biographer of that period. Then you have Suetonius, who's considered to be the greatest Roman biographer of that period. He cites sources quite frequently in his finer uh um, biographies like his life of, of Julius Caesar's life of Caesar Augustus, his life of Tiberius. He does cite sources in there. Now it's not like he's citing them just left and right, but we do find his sources cited throughout. Um, however, um, uh, what Suetonian scholars have said is that, uh, the sources that are cited aren't used. He doesn't make use of those sources a lot. Um, and most of his biographies, even his finest ones, are not based on those sources he cites. So that would be one thing to take into consideration, that even though the gospel authors do not cite their sources, uh, John says he was an eyewitness, right? Um, you've got uh, Luke, who in the first three verses of his gospel says that he received his information from, well, the way he puts it, those who had handed it down, um, it could mean uh, he received it from, say, the apostles and eyewitnesses, but it could also mean that he received it from those who heard it from eyewitnesses, or it could even mean a, a combination of both. 
So, but he is indirectly citing sources. He's getting it from some credible sources, either eyewitnesses or those who had heard it from the eyewitnesses. Um, so he's not directly naming these things, but again, John is claiming to be an eyewitness, and I, I think that's important. Um, so, yeah. And, and then you have the authorship of, of, of the Gospels that have been virtually universal in stating that it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, it's universal. Uh, that that's what that was claimed. No one claimed anything else. And with John, I think there are two exceptions. But one of those exceptions, the author who's mentioning the authorship of what we call the Gospel of John, that he, he was confused. And the other one was Gnostic in nature and said, Serinthus wrote it. Um, but other than those two, it's unanimous that John wrote that gospel, and it's certainly unanimous that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. Where did they get that idea from? So, um, and we do have a lot of these sources, some of them quite early, that mention the authorship of those of, of those gospels. Now, when you come to something like Plutarch's Lives, again, Plutarch is the greatest biographer of that period. Um, our best source for the authorship of that, because he doesn't name himself as the author anywhere, either in the title or in the preface, uh, the proem, or anywhere throughout the document. He doesn't name himself, Plutarch doesn't name himself as the author. It's complete, entirely anonymous. But we know Plutarch wrote it. How? Why do, why do classicists conclude that? Because of the evidence. Well, what's the, the best evidence, the earliest evidence? It's the Lamprius catalog, which was written no less than 100 years after Plutarch had died and could be as much as 200 or even longer, 200 years or even longer after Plutarch had died. And it's falsely attributed to Plutarch's son. And that's the best evidence, the earliest evidence we have for the authorship of Plutarch's lives. And yet no classicist today, in my understanding, is no classicist today questions whether he wrote those. So, you know, sources, authorship, I think that the skeptic there is not on firm grounds with their objection. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great way of putting all of that. You know, that's one of those, the, the authorship question is one of those uh, uh, things that's often uh, trumpeted out or, or brought out by the skeptical scholars. They, they'll say, well, it's, it was a game of, uh, of telephone, uh, you know, passing on by word of mouth for a number of often very stretched out lengths of time, they'd say between the accounts and being written down. And that at some point down in history, these names were just slapped on to give them some authority. Uh, I, I think you've done a good job of explaining it. And I think from what I've heard and understand and looked into as well, this is the case that there are no, other than these maybe two two questionable examples in the Gospel of John, but there are no examples of of these gospels being passed around in some form and, and and names being attached to them later, right? We have we have no examples of that happening. And then I guess the question becomes why would why would these names be chosen uh, to begin with? To be put on to be put on the gospels, like who are who are these people? Um, you know why why would the name Luke or the name Mark give those gospels uh, any more weight? Well, I guess with uh, Luke, you could say that uh, because of the book of Acts, it claims that Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, and Paul had connections with the Jerusalem apostles, hung out with them at times. Um, 
So you could say, you know, that would be a reason to think that Luke had access to the kind of material he writes, uh, the information that, that appears in the material he writes. So, yeah. And, you know, we can only guess why they might take Mark. I mean, I think it's first Peter. Um, I think it's first Peter and it refers to, um, so it's attributed to Peter and it's, he refers to my son, Mark. So, um, you know, that, that could give, you might speculate that that could give a basis for a relationship between Peter and Mark, but then you could say, well, why wouldn't you just attribute it to Peter? You wouldn't need to attribute it to Mark in that case. And even if here, here's another objection they give to the gospels, you know, a lot of the disciples like John or Peter, Matthew, they probably weren't that literate, um, which may not be the case for Matthew since he was a tax collector. He may very well have been literate. Um, but John, if he was a fisherman, he may not have been literate. So, you know, he couldn't have written that gospel, but he could have easily used an amanuensis, a scribe to do it. This was something that was common in antiquity. I mean, Cicero was one of the most educated people in all of Rome, um, one of the most highly respected, very literate, a, a great orator and lawyer. Um, but even so, he used a scribe, an amanuensis named Tiro, to write a lot of his things or to make what he wrote better. Uh, Paul, in some of his letters, he says, at the very end, I, Paul, who write this greeting, send you my my, uh, who write this message, send you my greetings. Um, so, which means he didn't write the rest of it. So the question would be, well, was he just dictating and the scribe wrote it down and then he just kind of included his own personal greeting at the end? Maybe in some cases, but not all. You've got Paul's letter to the church at Rome and that's considered to be the crown jewel of all of his letters. It's far better than uh, in terms of the literary quality of it than anything else that he wrote. And yet at the very end in chapter 16, verse 22, it says, I Tertius who wrote this letter, send you my greetings. So it's very likely that Tertius, just like Tiro did for Cicero. And we have a, a letter from Cicero to Tiro saying, acknowledging that Tiro can take Cicero's writings and make them far better it could very well be the case that Tertius took some dictation from Paul and then uh, put his magic to it, his own editorial magic to it, and made it sound as good as it did with Paul's reading it and approving it at the very end. Now, if that can happen with such educated people like Paul and Cicero, then why could it not be that, uh, that John used a scribe, that some of these others, Matthew perhaps, used a scribe? who took the story, notes, all this kind of stuff down, and then uh, put their editorial magic to it and wrote the gospel um, with that apostle's approval. That wouldn't be a problem at all. In fact, it's probably quite likely that something like that could have happened. Yeah, so the objection that these were fishermen and couldn't have, have written those things down, which again is, is as you say, a common objection that some of these critical, skeptical scholars would make, uh, is explained, and, and there, are, uh, there are examples of this happening uh, contemporary with, with, these, uh, with, with the gospel accounts. That's correct. 
So I'd love to dig into a few examples of what critics point to as uh, so-called irreconcilable differences in the Gospels. But just before we do that, I wonder if these apparent differences, even if they are differences in the Gospels, actually pose a problem. Um, You know, in the mind of the reader I mentioned earlier, it was a crushing blow to discover these inconsistencies, say in the story of the resurrection of Judas, uh, or the death of Judas, for example. Um, And if the Bible is this inerrant thing and you discover an error, well, yeah, that could shake your faith. But do you see a problem uh, in discovering differences in the way that gospel writers record events? Like, is there, before we even dig into examples, just in general, if we find two events written a bit different, do you think that's a problem to begin with? Well, it could be. It just depends on the extent of the difference and, you know, the what what the difference actually is. If there was a difference, one said that Jesus rose from the dead and the other said Jesus did not rise from the dead, well, that would be a significant difference and it would pose a significant problem. But we don't have anything like that in the Gospels. I think what's really important at the outset when one starts to consider Gospel differences is to acknowledge that if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, period. And it would continue to be true, even if there are some errors or differences, irreconcilable differences in the Gospels. Here's why I say that. First of all, the the early Christians never said, um, we have to believe, you have to believe in an inerrant Bible in order for Christianity, uh, the Bible has to be inerrant in order for Christianity to be true. They never said that. The test for the truth of Christianity is that he rose from the dead. And so, again, if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, period. Game, set, match. It's over. Um, And it would remain the case if, even if there are some errors and contradictions in the Gospels. I recall that Jesus was crucified in either April of the year 30 or April of the year 33. We don't know which. It's one of the two. We just don't know which one. Um, But let's just take, for example, say it was April 30. Now, if Jesus rose from the dead in April of the year 30, Christianity was true at that point. Now, the first gospel, we're not sure when it was written, but most scholars think it was the gospel of Mark, and they dated, uh, well, there's a range in which it is dated anywhere between 20 years after to maybe uh, 50 years after, 20 to 50 years after. I mean, that's a very broad range. That's not where most scholars are. I'd say most scholars are between 20 and 40 years after Jesus' death. So, But let's just say it was 40 years after Jesus' death. Now, we know that Jesus, we would know that if he rose from the dead, Christianity was true at that moment. Would it, would it be true 10 years after the resurrection? Before any Gospels were written? Yep. What about 20 years later? Yep. 30 years later? Yep. 39 years later? Yep. Let's say 39 years and 11 months later, no Gospels have yet been written, but Jesus rose from the dead 39 and a half, uh, 39 years and 11 months earlier. Is Christianity true? Of course. Let's suppose then the Gospel of Mark is written and it's got some errors in it. Does that negate the truth of Christianity? Of course not, because it was true before Mark was ever written. So it's. I think the most important thing to, to walk away with here is if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, period. And that remains the case even if there are errors and contradictions in the Gospels. I think that's the most important thing to remember. 
Um, but then we can we can get into specific differences and look at them to see if we have a plausible solution. <laughs> I think that's so well said. That's so central. I mean, yeah, regardless of those supposed errors, you're right. That's a great way of putting it. And Jesus still did rise from the dead. If there was an error or irreconcilable difference or whatever, we might have to say, the Bible is not inerrant by certain definitions of inerrancy, but Christianity is still true. That's the worst case scenario. (laughs) (laughs) That's not that bad. (laughs) Very well said. Well, I want to dig into two of these examples if we can. Uh, Take the narrative of Jesus's resurrection. Uh, In different gospel accounts, you have different women coming at different times and having different experiences. And a critic would, and they do, point to these and say that they're contradictory. They present differences that are impossible to reconcile. And so the resurrection bit of the gospels, in the least, must be made up or mythologized or embellished in some way. Could you sketch out for us exactly what problem these critics see with these accounts and how you would respond? Yeah, well, first I'd like to point out that you find differences between accounts in other ancient literature and in modern literature. Um, But just in ancient literature, just take the account of the assassination of Julius Caesar. You find that in Appian, Cicero, Dio, Livy, Nicolaus, Plutarch, Suetonius, and Valius. Um, and the accounts of his assassination differ significantly in minor details. But we wouldn't turn around and just say, well, these are hopelessly contradictory, and so we can't know what happened. Let's just throw the whole thing out. It's like the old song, you say tomato, I say tomato. You say potato, I say potato. Tomato, tomato, potato, potato. Let's call the whole thing off, right? Um, no. These, you would just say that there are some discrepancies in the peripheral details, and we just don't know what happened. It's kind of like when the Titanic sank. Uh, Survivors of it disagreed with one another. They contradicted one another pertaining to whether the Titanic broke in half prior to sinking or whether it went down intact. I don't know how you get that wrong, but they did. One, one One of the sides got it wrong, but no one therefore concludes that the Titanic didn't sink. Um, so we got to put this thing in perspective. At the very worst, the differences in the accounts would negate some ways of thinking of biblical inerrancy, but it wouldn't negate even the general reliability of the Gospels. It wouldn't relate, re- shouldn't uh, by any means negate the resurrection of Jesus itself or the truth of Christianity. So that's very important to put in it, to put it in context and to keep a proper perspective. Now, in terms of what happens here, yeah, there are a lot of discrepancies, uh, I should say numerous discrepancies in the resurrection narratives, more than we typically find throughout the rest of the Gospels. Um, And many of them, most of them, all but a couple of them are very easy to reconcile, to understand what's going on. So, for example, there is a one of the kind of, uh, techniques that goes on. We use it even today. We could call it spotlighting. And you think about being in a, uh, an auditorium watching a, a play, a, th- a theatrical performance, and you see a number of, of uh, actors on the stage, and all of a sudden the lights go out and a spotlight comes on and shines on a single one of those actors. Now, you know that there are others up there, but that spotlight is focused on that single person. Now, literary spotlighting would be, and this is very common throughout the ancient literature, 
where literary spotlighting, the author knows that multiple people are involved, but they cast their focus, their literary spotlight on a single character because that's the one that is most pertinent, relevant to the story they are telling. They, again, they know others involved, but they don't mention them. I could give you several examples of that, but I'll, I'll just move on. So when we come to the Gospels, how many women went to the tomb? Was it just Mary Magdalene, as we get the impression in John's Gospel, or were there multiple women like Matthew, Mark, and Luke have it? When they get to the tomb, how many angels do they see? Is it one angel like Matthew and Mark have, or were there two angels like Luke and John have it? That could be literary spotlighting. Um, in fact, it's almost certain that this is the case, because when Mary comes back in John's gospel, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb while it's early. She sees the tombs empty. She runs back and she finds Peter and the beloved disciple. And she says, they have taken the Lord and we, we don't know where they have laid him. Well, who's we? Uh, it would seem that it would make sense that it's the other women who are with her, as is reported by the other Gospels. And then what happens? In John's Gospels, it says, the beloved disciple and Peter run to the tomb and find it, as, as Mary had said. But Luke's Gospel says, Peter got up and ran to the tomb and found it, as the women had said. Um, but then later on, 12 verses later, Jesus is talking to the Emmaus disciples, and it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus is going to play with them a little bit here. And he says, hey, why the long faces, guys? And they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened here? And Jesus kind of plays along with it. He says, no, tell me what's going on. <laughs> well, you know, there's this guy named Jesus, and he was we thought he was the Messiah, a great prophet, but uh, he was crucified just the other day. But this morning, some of our women our, our w women folk went to the tomb and found it empty, and some angels said that Jesus had been raised. And then some of our own, some of our own, plural, went to the tomb and found it, as the women had said. But 12 verses earlier, it said that Peter went to the tomb. It doesn't mention anyone else. So we do find literary spotlighting very likely in these two cases just within the resurrection narratives. And that can easily explain uh, that difference on the number of women who went to the tomb, the number of angels they found there. Um, we can explain almost all of the differences in the resurrection narratives quite plausibly, very easily. There's only a couple that remain that are difficult to explain. But again, they're in peripheral details. They don't change any of the essential facts of the story. I really appreciate you underscoring that, that that these details, the ones that seem to pose a problem uh, that m may affect the the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, we can explain these. And the ones that remain uh, don't, don't alter that central idea. I mean, you keep bringing us back to this point, and I think it's so important to, to underscore that we may encounter things in the Gospels that, that shake our faith a bit because they seem to present differences. Um, but at at the core of the Gospels, what, what the, the core message is, is that Jesus is risen, and that remains true, despite what might seem like these, these niggling things that seem like they might be hard to put together. The facts that point to the resurrection, the facts are there that point to that being a true event. 
That, that's that's correct, Keith. And I, I, I just add one more thing to that that I think is important, and that is these things we confuse when we get a little uh, uh, uptight about it, a little bit um, uh, shakes our faith a little bit. We need to rethink about that because it shouldn't shake our faith. Once we understand if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, period. Even if there were some errors in the Bible, some contradictions, okay? It, instead of shaking our faith in whether Christianity is true, it actually should just shake our faith in certain views that we have about what we should be seeing, okay? I tell my students this on a regular basis. Our view of Scripture should be consistent with what we observe in Scripture. And let's just say that we saw some, we see some irreconcilable difference. Say you found some differences that are just simply irreconcilable. I don't know that we have those in in the Gospels. Um, I mean, there are some candidates for it, but I don't know that we certainly have them. There are things that I've seen, uh, not in the Gospels, but in ordinary life when I hear about two versions of the same story, and I think they're irreconcilable only to wait just a moment and hear another thing and see, oh, yeah, these fit together. They actually do fit together. Um, So I'm hesitant to say that there are any irreconcilable differences in the Gospels. There are a few candidates. They're minor, of course, but let's just say there were some irreconcilable differences. Let's say there were some certain errors well, it should shake our faith then in inerrancy. It shouldn't shake our faith in the truth of Christianity. We might have to review, revise some of our theological views, but we wouldn't have to abandon the view that Christianity is true. And inerrancy is not a fundamental doctrine. It's not one of the essential doctrines. It's a probably a tertiary doctrine. But we're, we're taught, you know, many are taught that inerrancy is so extremely important. And if you find an error in the Bible, well, then you begin the house of cards that collapses. You pull out that bottom card. But that is just, that, that's crazy. We wouldn't say that about any other piece of literature. We say, well, you're not claiming that any other piece of literature is divinely inspired. Well, what do you mean by divinely inspired? What does that look like? Um, if you're not assuming divine dictation, which most people do not assume or think happen, if you're not thinking that, then you have to be open to different ways of viewing divine inspiration. Um, so it's it's not a simple question. It's something that requires a lot of reflection and just further probing to say, is what I believe, um, I mean, because a lot of Christians disagree on what they believe, I think we're, we should really focus on essentials. We can look at non-essentials. We can embrace non-essentials, but those should be held with an open hand because we could be wrong on those, on some of the non-essentials. But when we, when one of the non-essentials ends up being potentially wrong, it shouldn't shake our faith. It should just shake our confidence that we understand that non-essential correctly. Yeah, I think that's so well said. I have one more question for you, and uh, I know that you don't like to shy away from the tough questions, whether it's in your books or your speaking ministry or your public debates. And I think you've mentioned, you've touched on this a couple times just now, 
I wonder if you could share with us to equip our listeners uh, a bit better. Maybe tell us one of those things that you find to be one of the most compelling criticisms of the gospel. Uh, one of the, the maybe the biggest challenges to these gospel differences, and and what you would what you would say in response to it. You know, maybe one of those things that. Um, may be seen as irreconcilable that, that you would agree is challenging to reconcile and, and how you would approach it? Well, let's see. There, I mean, there are a few of them. I, I'd, I'd say, I mean, there's only a handful of them, but I would say the most difficult uh, differences, uh, the most difficult difference in the Gospels would be in the infancy narrative, infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke. So what you have in Matthew, this is where the Magi come, and uh, then Joseph is warned in a dream that he's got to flee because Herod is going to be seeking to kill the baby. And so they flee to Egypt and they're there until they hear that um, Herod the Great has died. And then you've got Herod Archelaus, I believe it is, that uh, assumes uh, rule there. And he wasn't a good guy either. And Joseph is afraid. So then they say, okay, well, uh, you know, come on back to, to Israel, but uh, go ahead and you don't go to Jerusalem set, and they settle in Nazareth. So most scholars would figure there's about a two-year gap between Jesus's birth, a minimum of two-year gap between Jesus's birth, when, when they leave Bethlehem and when they, and, and they go to Egypt and then they return, about two-year gap. So they're in Bethlehem, Jesus is born, they go to Egypt, and then they come back and settle in Nazareth. But when you read Luke's gospel, Luke says that after Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, after the days of purification, which I think is 40 days, um, then it says Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem to have Jesus dedicated, and then it says right after that, after he was dedicated, they settled in Nazareth. So that chronology does not fit what we find in Matthew. That's very difficult to reconcile if we're taking that um, at face value. Um, the only thing I, I can think of is that Luke just maybe streamlines some things. He knows about the, the trip to Egypt, but he just circumvents it. And rather than saying they went to Egypt and then after came to Nazareth, maybe they just went from uh, Jerusalem to Nazareth. Um, he just kind of streamlines it. He, uh, uh, compresses the event, telescopes it, you could say. Uh, so I think that's the most difficult one in all of the gospels. I, I can only wildly speculate what's going on there, but that's all it is, is speculation. But it certainly isn't the the case that that is going to completely destroy the narrative. I mean, someone wouldn't take that and say, well, then Jesus yeah, couldn't have been not. born. It's just, it's, the story is just made up, Right. Right. That's correct. Yeah, I think I think that's that's interesting. We the, the core message, regardless of these differences and, and most that can be explained away with not some kind of great effort, but but by looking at the account and looking at common uh, what was used in in other literature, other other uh, 
um, contemporary literature, as you do in, in your book about gospel differences. Th- these things aren't uncommon or strange or bizarre. Scribes were used. These different techniques were, were used in other works of literature. And what we have when we begin to, to dig into these differences and explain them is, is the core message of Jesus coming and, and living and, and being crucified and, and rising from the dead. Uh, that remains intact. And there is just tons <laughs> I say, of support to believe that that account is reliable. That's correct. And um, yeah, once you get the resurrection, and you know that I've written a very large book on the resurrection, um, once you get that, you know, you can, you can pretty well rest. I mean, once I understood that Jesus rose from the dead, all of these other kind of challenges just kind of, they kind of faded. It's like, eh, all right, it's kind of interesting, but, you know, Jesus rose. Christianity's true. I'm not going <laughs> to worry about that. Um, so, but as, as you mentioned about my book, what I do in my book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? I uh, go to the compositional textbooks of antiquity and also go to Plutarch's writings where he tells the story on two or more occasions and from that infer various compositional devices, devices that classicists for you. I mean, I'm not making up these devices. They're devices that classicists for years have been acknowledging um, and that they see in Plutarch and they see them occurring uh, in the writings of other ancient authors. And I said, okay, well, let's go and um, let's look through Plutarch some more and, and see where else these uh, literary devices that classicists are appealing to. Let's see where else they appear. Let's see if there's some additional ones uh, that we can infer. Let's take what the compositional textbooks say are the proper way of writing in antiquity, including writing history. And then let's read the Gospels in view of these sort of devices to see if it sheds light on why those differences are there. Because the typical way of trying to resolve differences over the years um, has been creative harmonizations, which sometimes can go awry to the point where they're just kind of crazy and do violence to the texts. So, but I'm thinking if we read the Gospels as ancient biographies and, and in view of the literary conventions that would have been in play in the first century, does it shed light on the differences? And it sheds a lot of light on why those differences are there and sheds light on other things, uh, matters such as Christology, uh, which are, are, are quite valuable. So um, it's pretty cool. I, I, I think it's, uh, it's pretty neat. Now, as you mentioned, the Oxford book. Now, that book is a, um, it's an academic treatment, and for some it's going to be a difficult read. For the initi- uh, 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 reader with initiative like yourself, who's used to looking at these things. Yeah, you probably got through it fairly easily. <laughs> but I, I'm in the process, I'll be in it this year, of writing a more popular version, um, one that will be more easily understood, and I'll be dealing with some issues, some questions that have come up in the meantime uh, from people who have read the academic book. Well, that sounds fantastic. Where else can people go to find out more about what you're writing and you're speaking and, and what you're up to these days? Well, of course, I have a website. It's risenjesus.com. And I also have a YouTube channel. So they can just go to YouTube and type in my name, Mike Lacona, L-I-C-O-N-A. And they'll come to my YouTube channel. 
hey, look at video, some videos that interest you, subscribe, hit the bell next to it so that you'll get notified when we've got a series coming out later, probably early summer, uh, maybe late spring, but certainly by early summer called A Fly on the Wall. Because <laughs> I have a lot of people ask me at times, hey, you hang around with some really cool people. Boy, I'd love to just be a fly on the wall when you're having discussions with them. Well, now you can. <laughs> um, and so it's pretty cool. Well, we've already got a bunch of them that about 18 um, short interviews that have been recorded. It's just a matter of putting them together. But like I said, it'd be late spring, early summer. Also, if, if you'd allow me to, I, you know, we've got a, I teach at Houston Baptist University and we have, it's a fan, we have a fantastic program in a master's degree program in Christian apologetics. And you can complete the entire program via distance learning on your computer. I've had a student last year, I had a student who lives in Germany and he's doing his master's degree at Houston Baptist University. This is a fully regionally accredited program. So it's the highest kind of accreditation and you can have in the United States. Um, there's a lot of flexibility in, in it involved. So it's a really a great program. There are a lot of options within it. And if you don't have a bachelor's degree, or if you do have a bachelor's degree and just are not interested in getting a master's degree in Christian apologetics, but you would like to learn more about apologetics, we have diploma programs, various diploma programs that one can, in which they can engage, where you take some of the same classes, the same courses. You just don't have to do some of the, 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 the tougher work involved, like maybe writing term papers, research papers. Um, but you can get a diploma in various kind of uh, tracts of Christian apologetics, and you can do that via distance at Houston Baptist University. Just go to hbu.edu and then just look up uh, apologetics and see what comes up. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. And I got to say, on the YouTube front, it's very fun to see you uh, take uh, Bart Ehrman down a few notches and all those debates you have posted on your YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a fun time. Bart and I have become friends, believe it or not, uh, during the course of our six debates. And um, I like the guy. And we just have a good time when we hang out with one another. We're both going to be at a conference in Sweden uh, in April. And uh, we're going to be taking contra uh, conflicting views on whether historians are within their rights to investigate miracle claims. And there'll probably be some spirited discussion, but it will be fun. And we, we do it. Uh, we're, we're friends. So it, it's pretty cool. <laughs> That'll be great to listen to. Uh, Dr. Lacona, thank you so much for being on the program today. Uh, I appreciate the work you're doing. It's fantastic. I want to say God bless you. God bless your family and God bless the fantastic work you are doing uh, defending the resurrection of our risen Lord. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Keith. And God bless you too, my brother. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Dr. Mike Lacona on the reliability of the Gospels. Check out the show notes for links to his website, links to his books, and links to the stuff that he is up to and doing, and be sure to check that out. His YouTube channel is especially entertaining. There's all kinds of short videos and debates and different ways that we can defend the 
historicity and the reliability of the resurrection and the Gospels. It's great stuff. Check out our website at thecordialcatholic.com. I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and send your feedback, please. I'd love to hear from you. CordialCatholic at gmail.com. To support this show, go to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Even $1 or $2 a month gets you access to a behind-the-scenes show and special bonus content. $5 or more a month gives you access to draws for monthly books. It all supports this ministry. It is not my job, not even a part-time job for me, and all your funds go right back into the show. PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic for one-time donations, and you have my eternal thanks and gratitude for helping to keep this show going, to help expand this mission. Please do subscribe, follow this show, please do tell one or two friends that you might think might like it. That's too many mites, and anyway, oh well. Thanks for listening, guys. God bless, and see you next week. Thank you so much. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.